When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Whoa, what's up with that? Hey. <laughs> Special Favreau Honeymoon Edition with guest host Alyssa Mastromonaco. Best friend of the pod. Best friend of the pod. First four-time pod guest. Do I get four a jacket? Right. Like on SNL? Yes, you get a jacket. It'll be sweet. It says for peel and go fuck yourself on the back. Well, I actually ordered a t-shirt and it's been back ordered for four weeks. So hopefully that'll come someday. Uh, tweet it, love it. He's in charge of that. So very big podcast today. Later on, Tommy and Lovett are going to interview House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, my own congresswoman. And while few folks are at it, download all the pods uh, this week. Pod Save the People, Love It or Leave It, with friends like these. And Alyssa, you'll appreciate this. Tommy has our old friend Liz Sherwood Randall on Pod Save the World this week. LSR, way to go. And Dan. It's Love It here. I'm not actually here for this episode. I'm here to interview Nancy Pelosi, but we have a very big Love It or Leave It. Can yeah, I, why don't you give me the download? Can uh, I just say, hold on a second, Love It or Leave It, <laughs> that for many years I have always wanted to do roller derby, and if I had ever had the chutzpah to do it, my name would have been Nasty Pelosi, because that's how bad she is. Okay, Badass. Good. Badass, sorry. Uh, this week on Love It or Leave It, we have Paul Shear, Rory Scavell, and Jessica Chafin, just like a really good panel. And that's all I have to say. I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say to each other. All right. So a couple things. First, I want you to know that this is by popular request of all the friends of the pod out there. When I announced that Favreau, unlike me, was not going to podcast from his honeymoon, I said we'd have a special guest host. And everyone said, I hope it's Alyssa Mastro 44. Well, here I am. They're going to get a lot today. Yeah, Tweet and you will get responses from us. 100%. All right. So... We're going to dig into the healthcare bill in a minute. But first, let's talk a little about the Favreau wedding because we were there together. I mean, I'll tell you, it's the first time I ever, you know, could have dreamed that you and Pluff and I would have a platonic sleepover. So that was great. <laughs> That's right. We were in a house. We stayed in the house. You, me, Hallie, David Pluff. It was an Obama, reun- old school Obama reunion. I mean, Pluff did not deviate from his protein bars, but he did have a couple beers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Hallie wants me to point out that we introduced Pluff to a thing called Bagel Bites uh, late, late in the evening after the wedding. He ate them all. He, like, bogarted the bites. <laughs> all right. So I've got a couple thoughts on the wedding. First, congratulations to John and Emily. It was a beautiful wedding. Beautiful. Um, second, after my wedding uh, last year, Hallie and I wrote our own vows, put a lot of time and energy into it, a lot of pressure with... Uh, historically great American speechwriters like John Favreau, Ben Rhodes, and Cody Keenan in attendance. One of the first people I saw after our photos was Favreau, and who had just gotten engaged. And I said to him, uh, boy, he said, great fouls, or something nice like that. And I said, well, the pressure's really on you. And <laughs> I will say he delivered, but here's the thing. His vows were great. Emily's might be better. 
Emily's were incredible. And let me say, like, listening to people who write their own vows just, like, deeply moves me because I have to say I'm sorry to my husband because when we got married, I asked Justice Kagan for the shortest vows possible. And he looked a little appalled, and I realized it was sort of appalling after listening to you guys. So thanks, DK. (laughs) Second, uh, during the reception... Um, after maybe a signature main cocktail or two, <laughs> I tweeted a photo of myself, Hallie, John, and Emily with the subject line, Wives of the Pod, which is basically an idea I've had since the day John and Emily got engaged. And, uh, <laughs> You've been keeping it the, in your like iPhone notes. <laughs> that's right. And so my one, the one takeaway I'd have is for those of you who uh, know John and I, but via the podcast or other ways, um, but don't know Emily and Hallie, Someone asked me the other day, are the wives of the, the pod as, quote, unquote, spicy as the pod hosts? And I was like, one thing you have to understand is the wives of the pod have 10x the personality that John and I have. That's true. All right. Enough of that. Let's get to some real business here. Oh, man. So as we were getting ready to record, yep. the Senate health care bill came out, which it- is – a break from tradition where I was pretty sure they were going to wait till after we were done recording to put out the bill. So let's do a quick summary of what we know right now is in the bill, okay? Go for it. All right. Here's the top line. It's a shitburger. <laughs> if you can call it that. So that's a, that's a legislative policy term, if you will. <laughs> Since the day um, I met you. But here's, here's what you need to know. It's a shitburger. It is a gives a massive tax cut to the wealthy paid for by cutting health care for the Americans who need it most. But here are some of the details. It reduces tax credits for the people in the middle class to help it reduces the tax credits to help people in the middle class afford their health care. It allows insurance companies to charge up to five times as much for people over 50, lets insurance companies deny coverage for maternity care, mental health care, and substance abuse treatment dramatically cuts treatments for people with opioid disorders. And from what we can tell, defunds Planned Parenthood, which 2.4 million people depend on for care. So this is, it is essentially the House bill with a couple of changes that are actually worse. Because as you know, Trump said he thought the House care bill was, quote, too mean, which is fucking rich, if you ask me. Um, But this bill is actually meaner because it makes more it makes more dramatic cuts to Medicare over time. It uh-huh. just phases them out to give sort of cover for people who or centers who serve in the Medicaid expansion states who may want to create some sort of bullshit excuse to vote for the bill. So what do you think? So, buddy, I got some things to say here. Um, Go for first, it. for anyone, uh, any friend of the pod who has watched The Handmaid's Tale, in that first episode when you're sitting there and you're like, shit, how did this happen? This is how it happened. What's happening right now is the prequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Um, <laughs> and I spent some time this morning on my drive over here in L.A. Uh, getting some details on exactly who's going to be affected by the Medicaid cuts. Are you ready? I want to hear. 49% of all births, 64% of all nursing home residents, 30% of all adults with disabilities, 40% of all poor adults, 39% of children, 
76% of all poor children, and 60% of all children with disabilities. Way to go, Republicans. Like, literally attacking the weakest among us, which, like, if you actually want to find a purpose for government, it should be protecting the weakest among us, right? So way to go, you guys. Would, yeah, great job. Great job. You would think that... You would think that anyone with a heart would want to help these people. Instead, they want to hurt them. And why do they want to hurt them? Why do they want to hurt one-fifth of all Americans? To pay for a tax cut to benefit billionaires. the top 1% of all Americans. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, it's really – it's not good. I mean, it is uh, – let's do a little on the process, and then we'll sort of dig into what all this means. Sure. Here's, here's what's happening. As we record this on Thursday morning, the Senate Republicans are meeting to review a – the discussion draft of the bill, dis, quote unquote discussion. Um, the text was just released publicly. The CBO is expected to release its official score of the bill, which will tell us how much it costs, how many people will lose health care, who's impacted. That's either going to happen Friday, tomorrow, or Monday. Senate leadership, evil vampire Mitch McConnell, <laughs> are um, still pushing for a vote before the 4th of July recess, which is next week. And it's, there are real questions about what sort, how much debate there will be on this bill, whether there will be amendments. Um, Senator Schumer, uh, who was on the podcast on Monday, uh, was at, he confronted uh, Senator McConnell and asked him whether he would commit to more than 10 hours of debate on the bill, and McConnell would not do that. So we're going to do something that's going to affect one-fifth of the economy with no hearings, no debate, no real discussion or analysis, no real amendments. We're just going to try to jam it through before the American people realize what a shitburger this is. Yeah. And so what do we do? Right? I mean, this is so effectively the American people, the grassroots, have a weekend to have their voices be heard. What would you tell people out there who are reading this today for the first time and are afraid for themselves, their family, their community, and frankly, for the country? Well, a couple things. So Families USA did a call this morning, and they listed all of the fence-sitting senators. And they are as follows. Collins, Murkowski, Cassidy, Flake, Gardner, Portman, Cruz, Paul, Lee, and Sass. The one thing that people can do is call them, flood their offices with calls today, over the weekend, Monday, and all of next week. I mean, that's it's it sounds so easy, but it's something. But I think that, you know, the Senate Democrats are going to have a challenge, right, because they're going to have to combine their procedural outrage with substantive outrage. And so we'll see if they can do that. But for our people, I mean, I think everyone's just got to take to the streets this weekend. I, I think that, you know, they're trying to hide the ball and and the people have to say, you know, show like show us debate. We want to see you defend Republicans out in front of us on television, in town halls, defend what you're about to vote for. And uh, I wonder if they can do it. I wonder if they can actually say how they can justify cutting Medicare and any any benefits from Planned Parenthood. I mean, for God's sake. What what do you think? This is sort of a debate about this, right? What is the better? There's two arguments to make here. One is on the substance of the bill, what the bill would do. And we know that is unpopular because the House bill, which is this is essentially the same bill, right? Same same shit burger, different bun, <laughs> uh, is 
you know, polls at like 18 percent is the least popular piece of legislation that I have ever seen in my political career. So there's a substance, but there's also the process, right? Done in secret with 13 men, no debate, meeting with lobbyists. You know, Senator Murkowski today was asked what she thought about the bill, and she said she hadn't seen it because she wasn't a lobbyist. Yes, um, I so saw that. Mitch McConnell was talking to the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, all the big corporate insurance who will benefit, and not even his own colleagues. So how do you think you should balance the process for a substance argument? Well, and Pfeiffer, here's an interesting thing, and you are probably better at this than I am, but it's actually the way that they're going about this is really unusual. I mean, doing this uh, this budget process through reconciliation right? so that they need a simple majority to pass it. And so the Republicans can lose up to two senators, and because Mike Pence is the tiebreaker, still pass this bill. And that's, that is the part that's almost the most offensive to me, that this is – that they don't this is something that should require a greater majority than, you know, losing two two Republicans. I mean, even for like I think in the process for substance argument, we should the process argument was the right argument for Senate Democrats to make over the last month because we didn't know what the substance was, right? So there was nothing to do, which was by design for Mitch McConnell, uh, who is not a good person, at least publicly, but he is a smart person and it was a fairly evil plan. I have often referred to Paul Ryan as an incompetent fuckstick, uh, but Mitch McConnell is not that. Uh, he is dangerously competent. And But now that we know what the bill is, right, we have to argue how it impacts people and how it particularly impacts the senators, the specific senators who we are targeting, who we may have a shot at flipping. So let's take Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, for instance. Sure. She has also not seen the bill till this morning. The West Virginia is a state that depends a lot on Medicaid. It's a state that has suffered tragically through the op- opioid epidemic. Yep. Her state would be devastated. Her constituents would be devastated by these Medicaid cuts. It's not this is not a theoretical exercise. There are people in West Virginia who have voted for Shelley Moore Capito whose taxpayers whose tax dollars pay her salary will die if this bill passes. I mean, and I mean that I... sounds hyperbolic and dramatic, but it is a actual fact. And and to, for her or Rob Portman, similar situation, for those people to vote for this so that they will because they were afraid of Trump's Twitter account or some Breitbart headlines or the wrath of insane Sean Hannity rant is deeply worrying for democracy. Absolutely. I mean, I saw something the other day that in Southwest Ohio, 10,000 people will die this year from opioid overdose. How? I mean, on the one hand, I think that, you know, those senators have to actually reveal how bad their states are. They have to be really honest and say, we can't vote for this bill because your neighbors are going to die. You know, this everyone on this street is going to lose any sort of support or, you know, rehab or anything that they that they get from Medicaid and the hospitals and all that. And so I don't I mean, if you were them, what would you do? What would you say? How would you if you knew in your heart, how can Portman not know in his heart that he can't vote for this? How do you how do you thread that needle with your supporters who voted for Trump and think and thought that they were going to help him? This bill does not help them. And so, you know, the really 
sort of like dark side of me. I was talking to some of my girlfriends yesterday. I'm like, let them let the Republicans walk off a cliff. Let Americans see exactly what the fuck they voted for. And but that's I mean, that's so awful because so many people are going to be hurt. People who voted for Trump and people who didn't vote for Trump. Um, because they actually voted for someone who gave no material details uh, during his campaign of what he was actually going to do except make America great again. You know, I'm very wary of people. There's sort of two threads of sort of discussion among progressives, among people on Twitter that I find disturbing. One is Trump's voters, who are the ones who will be most most affected by these cuts, Mm -hmm. that Trump's voters deserve this because they voted for Trump. That is a, in my view, a horrendous and deeply hurtful way to think about life. Like no one, no one deserves this. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what you've done in your life. You do not deserve to lose health care. Totally. Full stop. Second is politically, if we let them do this, we'll be able to take back the House and maybe the Senate. That may actually be true. But the whole point of having the House and the Senate is so you can do things like pass health care for every American. And so what's the point of doing any of this if we're willing to let people get hurt so that we gain political advantage? And I don't think – I do not – you know, Senator Schumer was very clear on this. Other Democrats are, do or want to do everything they can to stop this, and that's right. But there is no silver lining to this passing. It's just bad. It is just bad. And, you know, part of me, I look at, you know, you're already getting emails from the DCCC and the DNC about this. I almost wish that everyone would just, like, give the reins to Cecile Richards because I think that she is the most effective messenger and, like, she is deeply compassionate in the way she talks about what this bill is going to do. I just think that that she, um, that Planned Parenthood is really sort of the most you know, honest messenger on this, even though, of course, you say the word Planned Parenthood and people recoil. But one thing that I heard this morning, and I don't know if you heard it, is that this weekend is going to be do or die weekend. That's what Democrats are planning. Um, I don't know what that means yet, but I, I, I saw it on Twitter on my way here. Well, then it must be true. It must be true. I mean, do or die, it's, that's like, I mean, that's bold messaging. Well, it was interesting in... Uh listening to Senator Schumer on the Monday podcast where he, you know, Tommy and Lovett sort of pushed him on whether they would do this idea that's being floated by Indivisible, a group that Pod Save America works closely with. Um, it's called filibuster by amendment where they would put up essentially like 10,000 amendments to slow this down because we got to take this in stages, right? We have to – goal one should be to get to the July 4th recess. We need – we need to have, allow there to be some time for the, for the American people and the constituents of these senators to understand what's about to happen because people are busy. They're not reading Twitter every two seconds like us or watching cable news all day long. I mean, they are downloading two podcasts a week, but other than that, <laughs> they don't have time for these things. And so, and so the question was, would, would you, um, you know, to Senator Schumer, would you do this filibuster by amendment? And he said he did not commit to it. But he did say Senate Democrats would do everything they possibly could. And the reason he did not commit is it was not clear whether McConnell could just change the rules and just after the First Amendment, just change the rules and force it to vote, which is where this is where we get into your um, handmaid's tale uh, (laughs) analogy, which is like this is not how the process is supposed to work. And what you sort of realize in watching how Trump has conducted himself, how Mitch McConnell has conducted himself, 
is that the functioning democratic process as we know it is not embodied in law or in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It depends upon both parties who may fiercely disagree with each other, but both of them believing in a set of democratic norms about the way, about the value of public input, about the value of transparency, about allowing the public to have a say in what's happening. And if one of those parties, in this case, the Republican Party, decides to disavow all those norms, we get to a place where it doesn't feel like, like, I mean, it's technically democracy in the sense that these people were elected, but they're not, this is not American democracy. It is, we basically, we have an election and then we live in a quasi-authoritarian state for, until the next election. And I mean, that is, what is it? Like, there, there's so much at stake here, I think, beyond just healthcare, which is critically important, is if this is allowed to happen, this is how every piece of legislation will be passed going forward. And well, that's not good. No, and and the thing that I would say, and I think I might have even said this on the pod before, so forgive me, but there is something so unkind. It's almost like, it's like Donald Trump never ended the campaign and became president of all Americans. You know what I mean? And so when Barack Obama became president, we didn't roll into the White House and just like start skeet shooting and just kill everything George Bush did on principle. There was like thoughtful discussion. And I just don't understand how I mean, and based on the fact that this came out this morning and Donald Trump had like 10 tweets that were just utterly fucking insane, almost none of which had anything to do with healthcare. Like, could you imagine you know, 10, eight years ago, whenever it was that we were doing the ACA, there were meetings and POTUS gave speeches and we did town halls and we heard from people. And this is like, this is like some sort of like fight club poker game where they're all in the basement, just like whittling stuff and smoking cigars and like throwing darts at a wall and being like, yeah, this is going to work. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really sad. It's very sad. And, you know, I think, and Pfeiffer, you may remember this better than I do, but didn't the Affordable Care Act have something like 200 amendments? Yes, and took in the markup process more than two dozen amendments from Republicans were included in the bill. And we had two live on camera, in addition to all the hearings, Mm -hmm. all the debate, it passing the House and the Senate twice uh, with debate around both times. The president also went to the House Republican retreat. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. And had a live on television debate with House Republicans about the health care bill. I would note that he wiped the floor with them. But, <laughs> you know, that let the history work show that. And then we had an all day broadcast live on C-SPAN healthcare summit with the president, the Democratic leadership, the Republican leadership to debate healthcare. Now, for I mean, all I, the world to see. I will say that if you recall watching that, it did look sort of like the least fun time that ever happened. But at least we did it. Yeah, it was. It was basically a nine-hour awkward Thanksgiving dinner for people who didn't like each other that much. <laughs> it's true, and you know, now I guess I just you know for the Republicans who actually endured that whole process. I guess I don't know how they can abide by this process. Do you know what I mean? Like how how they think that it is patriotic, 
or actually the best for their constituents. I mean, the, the things in this bill are crazy. Yeah, it's so disturbing because I am – I may come off as quite cynical, um, but – and I may be. But I do believe or I want to believe that down deep that most of the people involved in politics, not all, not Donald Trump, perhaps not Steve Bannon and certainly not Mitch McConnell, but most – genuinely want to do the right thing. They're under a lot of political pressure. There is, we have huge disagreements on what the right thing is, but you basically want to do the right thing for people. This really makes you question that about the Republicans, because even if you believe, and it is a totally legitimate position to believe that Obamacare should be changed dramatically, right? Like, I think we all agree it should be improved, but if your position should be changed dramatically, and that we should take a different approach to healthcare in this country. There is a way to do that that is thoughtful and respectful and compassionate to people. Now, I, you and I may fundamentally disagree with the policy outcomes they come with, but it would be a process not dissimilar from the one we went with Obamacare. You would have hearings. You would talk to people. You would meet with the people affected by Obamacare. You would have town halls with your constituents, ask them what they think. You would allow there to be a public debate. Maybe you didn't even have a day-long summit at the Blair House. Yep. But this is not that process. This is a legislative carjacking that is happening right before us. And the only thing we can do is the thing that you brought up, which is you gave the list of the senators. We will tweet those out again, our targets. If you live in those states, call them, email them, tweet at them. Go peacefully protest in, in their office. Yep. On the off chance they will allow themselves to be seen in public this weekend, show up at their events. This is it. This is perhaps. I mean, this is this may be the most important point of the Trump presidency for however long it is. Absolutely. This is the thing that will have the most impact on the most Americans, and we have seven days to try to defeat it, and that's. I mean, that's the ball game right there. I guess, you know, in some of my favorite town halls have been the ones where people aren't screaming and yelling. They just hold up signs that say disagree. I mean, anything basically at this point, like, I really just can't imagine that this is going to happen next week. And that so many people, like you said, I mean, we are like hyper alert. You know, we were sitting here waiting this morning. You know, I got the... uh between you and my hubs, I got like, you know, the the breaking news that it was coming, the, the bill that it was happening. I opened up the 142-page document and <laughs> tried reading it and then realized I wasn't a lawyer and I would just put that to the side for now. But there are so many people who are busy with their everyday jobs. The, and they're the very people who this bill would impact who, who might not know about it until too late. And so, you know, I hope that the, the, the DNC and every organization out there takes the time to not send, you know, crazy fundraising emails, but to just send people the bullet points of this bill that they need to know. And, you know, that's I guess that's the best that we can hope for that and some good, honest protesting this weekend. All right. The next week will either be the darkest week of the Trump presidency to date or the most hopeful week. And what happens between now and then, we'll, we'll decide that. Don't you that, sounded feel, very, that sounded very earnest of me, but I actually mean it. Don't you Don't you feel like we have to take all of next week off from work and just like hit the ground? Many of the people who I work with listen to this podcast, and I will be fighting in my, in my off hours. <laughs> After four. <Yeah. laughs> this is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's this great stuff coming. 
Lots of great stuff. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. All right, moving from one dark topic to the next. This is a real hopeful podcast today. Um, <laughs> Georgia 6. Ugh. 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 Did you watch the results come in or were you off being a celebrity best-selling author? So if I'm being honest, I was off being a celebrity best-selling author. <laughs> Chelsea Handler and I were at the last bookstore in L.A. doing an event and we got the text right before we went on that he had lost and sort of like, you know, it wasn't a landslide, but he had sort of lost handily. Yeah, I, I did not watch the results on television. I did what I normally do, which is watch normal person's television and then <laughs> just mainline political Twitter. So I was watching Casual on Hulu. Um, is that and good? And paying no attention to what was happening and, and just getting darker and darker. And I liked, I have gotten my hopes up a couple times, uh, most notably the 2016 presidential election. Um, <laughs> and so I went into this with very low expectations, just sort of watching the atmospherics around the race suggested that if the election had been 10 days ago, Ossoff might have won. Um, but it clearly Republicans were coming home at the end and it was in a Republican district. And, you know, the thing that I mean, this is a it's a tough loss. Um, so there are a couple of things about this. Do you one, mean because it cost 50 million dollars? <laughs> yes, it was a tough and very expensive loss. Two hundred dollars um, per vote. That's kind of a bargain, right? I, mean, I guess so. Uh, two takes that people have on this. One, tough loss, but there's 70-some districts that are more Democratic than Georgia 6, and Democrats are reforming, so we shouldn't be dark. The other one is, when are we going to fucking win a race? Where are you? 
So here's the thing. I'm going to be really real right now. I, I didn't really ever think he was going to win. I think that for me, on election night in 2016, watching, you know, my alma mater, you know, Dane County, Madison, Wisconsin, watching Hillary, you know, underperform by like 30 percent of what Barack Obama had done. My view is that we've really got to like bunker down on those battleground states and the expansion states are just there. We shouldn't be too hopeful. We should we should just bring our own chickens back home to roost. And, you know, and also, I guess, you know, if you were looking at that horrible woman that he ran against, I mean, if you didn't listen to her talk, but you just saw her picture, she kind of looked like Mrs. Garrett from The Facts of Life. And you're like, she's not that <laughs> repulsive. You know, she doesn't look mean. But no, I mean, I would love for the Democrats to win, but I don't really I'm not super disappointed. I don't really know that this was our moment. This wasn't the bellwether. I'm concerned about the fact that we haven't won in a long time, even though I know in my head that this was a very tough race. And that, you know, if you go back to when Ossoff did not get to 50 in the runoff, everyone said it was going to be almost impossible for him to win a runoff because the the nature of the district and then. Trump self-immolated a hundred times and the House were passed a horrendous health care bill and then they thought he had a chance. But it sort of reverted to the mean of the best a Democrat can do in that district may be, at least in the current environment, may be 48 points because that was the end result. It was essentially 52-48. Can I ask you a question? Did of you course. see uh, – I didn't see Bernie anywhere. Did you see Bernie? Did he endorse him or did they, they not want Bernie's endorsement? He – I, they did not campaign with him. Yeah. Um, originally, there was a bit of a kerfuffle because Bernie was asked if this was months ago if Ossoff was a progressive, and he said, "I don't know." And many people took that as Bernie sort of dissing Ossoff. Mm-hmm. I took that as Bernie legitimately not knowing the answer and not wanting to say someone's progressive who definitely was not. I, don't, I think I got the sense that it was not an intentional dig. But the Bernie thing raises a question, which is perhaps the, one of the more dismaying parts or annoying parts of the election, other than losing an important House seat, was seeing that the immediate reaction from Democrats was just a rehash of the 2016 primary, with the Bernie people having a very strong opinion that this is all about the DNC and the quote-unquote management class and not being willing to be progressive and the Clinton operatives uh, arguing back against the Bernie people about how you have to win in these more Republican districts. And it's yeah. just like... I saw that we too. We have bigger problems, people. Like, That's, just you know, and get that was, over it. It's like I kind of... You know, if you go back however many years, I mean, people... like. It goes back to the fact that we don't really have a leader of the party right now. I mean, it's POTUS. I mean, it's I mean, POTUS Obama, 44, I would guess. But he's, you know, he's living his best life. And people aren't really so hot necessarily to be with Hillary. And Bernie's bar is apparently very high for what he's going to do. So it's like it really, when you think about it, there's no real celebrity. There is no... Um, There is no savior, right, who's going to come in and just pull it all together. And that's why I am uh, I was talking to my ladies at the Women's March this morning. And this really the next two years and specifically the next seven days are 100 percent about the grassroots and like self-organizing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, what is frustrating about the rehashing of the 2016 primary is both sides are right 
and both sides are also wrong. It's just, it's not an either or, right? There is, I think the Bernie people are right that that a strong economic populist candidate can do very well in some of these Republican districts, right? That can separate, you know, can get back some of the Obama Trump voters. So that is true. But it is also true that we need to have strategies that are specific to the districts. And like one of the arguments was, well, if you just had a more progressive candidate, you would have had a higher turnout. That is not why we lost Georgia 6. No. Georgia 6 is a Republican district and everyone turned out. Turnout was through the roof. The problem was there were more Republicans than Democrats and the Repub- Democrats turned out and the Republicans turned out. And if we are going to take back the House, take back a gerrymandered House, right? This is not just about who's going to get more votes across the country. In a gerrymandered House, we, are, we need Obama voters who went for Trump to vote for Dem- congressional Democrats. We need Romney voters who voted for Clinton because they don't like Trump to vote for a congressional Democrat. And if we dig through the numbers, my guess is in Georgia 6, the Romney, uh, some of the Romney-Clinton voters voted for Handel over Ossoff, right? And we're going to need Democrats who sat out 2016 to vote in 2018. We have to do all of those things. And the mix is going to be different by district. And so, like, there is a, a narrow path to taking back the House. It is achievable. We're going to have to get better at all elements of it. And I think it is fair to say that the Republicans, from a data and field perspective, have narrowed the gap significantly with Democrats from where we were in 2012. Can we talk about something that's a little happy for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. My Well, this is my new boyfriend, Randy Bryce, a.k.a. at Iron Stash in Wisconsin, <laughs> who is running against Paul Ryan. Yes. He, if you are not following him on Twitter, follow him. He needs to be on the pod like ASAP. But I was sitting in bed reading Twitter and uh, it was like two nights ago and I found his ad and it was the most emotional, like beautifully done ad. And he is exactly I want everyone to watch his ads because he and follow him and see what he has to say, because he is exactly what you're talking about. He is a different candidate for a different race, you know, in Wisconsin. And he's probably, you know, he may not be so liberal that, you know, like Bernie would endorse him. But that doesn't mean that he is not a phenomenal candidate that could really do great things for that that district. So anyway, he gave me hope because I was like, if people like this are going to run, maybe we'll be OK. I, I cannot remember who wrote this, but it was uh, I saw it on Twitter. It was from, uh, I think, a New York Magazine story. So I apologize to whoever actually did it, said that he was the physical embodiment of Bruce Springsteen's discography. Yes, every single one. Darlington County, born to run. I mean, it is like the whole the whole thing. He's everything. He's a reason to believe. There you go. All right. Uh, coming up next, we have House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Dan, I'm here. I was here for the end of the conversation. Yeah. Great. Well, love it. He showed up Excellent. for this, but not for my book event. <laughs> <laughs> love it goes dark. What? Where? What, what book yeah, event? Yeah, you missed it. It's fine. What book event? It's fine. It was two nights ago, and I tagged you in my Instagram post. Is that how I was invited? Was yep. I invited through a tag and uh, Instagram post? And I told you <laughs> hey. at the wedding we were both at so, this weekend. I'm sorry. So my invitation to an event was a off the cuff remark at a wedding <laughs> and a fucking Instagram tag. I was not invited Didn't to this book know, event. Didn't know, Commander, that I'm you needed back. a hand engraved invitation. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. 
The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod today, we have leader Nancy Pelosi. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, the Senate bill is finally loose. Uh, it is in the <laughs> wild. Uh, obviously, it had been a, in, under the protection of lobbyists and Mitch McConnell <laughs> until this morning, but it is free. Uh, what is your reaction to the bill? Well, it's not a bill. It's a working draft or some <laughs> expression, some <laughs> euphemism for let's throw this up against the wall and see what happens. But it is um, cruel to children and other living things. And I'm seeing my a uh, friend, uh, Chuck Schumer, now with some of the leaders in the Senate, uh, having a press conference about it right now. They have a big sign that says, mean. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that was just quoting the president on the House bill. Uh, the president said this, he hopes this bill has heart. And um, we'll see what that is. It, it, so far, the working draft is heartless. Yeah. It still does. It makes people pay more for fewer benefits. It uh, has a, an age tax if you're uh, if you're uh, 50 to 64, you pay almost five times more. It undermines social uh, Medicare. It throws millions of people off of care, and it takes away essential benefits and leaves it up to the states, punches pilot style. But nonetheless, um, just a, a fact is no guarantee. Yeah, I mean, it looks like they they kind of ran headlong into the math problem of 
the one thing that was sacrosanct between the House bill and the Senate bill was the elimination of taxes on the rich. And once you decide that you need to make those cuts in the bill, then you're left with figuring out just how exactly to distribute benefit cuts to the poor and the middle class. Well, it, it is, first of all, though, understand, whatever they do, it will be a tax bill disguised as a health care bill. And uh, ultimately, you know, this is, I say, they put it out, try to get a good, as best score they can, as good a score as they can from the CBO. Um, this is, we're talking too much process. You try to get it evaluated in the way that is the most benign, as the leader, uh, Schumer said, a wolf in sheep's clothing. We're a Trojan horse, or if you have any others, you know, you know what the, the message is. As, as they wheel in this Trojan horse, or they let in this wolf, the sheep, uh, they will then make changes in order to get the vote. And we think they go further to the right. So while it may have some, uh, some little appeal, like they throw a few crumbs to Medicaid in the beginning, they kill the state's ability to meet the needs of people in the longer term. I don't want to... Uh say anything that profane in your presence, uh, but I will let you know that uh, we're referring to it as same shit burger, different bun. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Because everybody understands that very well. Yeah, we can workshop that with the caucus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, and you had it poll tested and yeah, we, grouped and all the rest. Yeah, we, sure. we pulled it with uh, with Bill, our producer, in real time. He's nodding. Uh, <laughs> obviously, this, will, this bill will go through a bunch of changes but you know the arm twisting that that speaker ryan in a bumbling fashion uh went through to get the house bill passed in the first place um you know ended up in a lot of change with a lot of changes do you think the plan in this form could get through the house uh, should we be worried about a swift passage we should be worried about it uh but uh, as a possibility a likelihood well it remains to be seen in the next couple of days uh what we're hearing is there are many senators who are not going to be for this bill. Now, what changes they make between this week and next week, uh, you know, obviously remains to be seen. But they could pass it Wednesday, Thursday, and then send it over to us. And that's what we're being, we're preparing for, the worst case scenario. Let's just say this. If they pass the bill and it becomes law, it's a killer for them. Yeah. Because it's what it does to the American people. And some people say to us, you should just let it happen. It assures the winning of the Senate and the House. But we don't want to do that to the American people. We'd rather have the Affordable Care Act in effect than have that damage done to the American people for an electoral benefit. Having said that, they'd have to be on an accelerated path. Now, what I'm hearing is that Mitch McConnell, he's a pro. He's not going to take up a bill that he doesn't have the votes, unless he doesn't care if he has the votes. They may just want to get this off the table. So they can do what is their life's work that is in their DNA, that is their North Star, give tax breaks to the rich as they move on to the uh, tax bill. The tax bill is their purpose. The rest of this is campaign stuff. Leader Pelosi, what, what should people listening right now do if they are worried about this bill passing, if they are worried about tens of millions of people losing health care? How can they get involved today and stop this monstrosity from happening? Thank you very much for asking. Uh, what they can do is call a friend who lives in a Republican dist- uh, state represented by a, a Republican senator. If they don't, you know, if they live in California or New York or something, if you have one call to make, <laughs> the, right. the traditional one call, call your friend to call a Republican senator. It's really important that they hear from their bosses, which are the electorate. It's very important that they 
Nothing is more eloquent to a senator or a member of Congress, any other, than the uh, voice of his or her own constituent. And that's what's happening massively by the outside groups, social media, and the rest around the country uh, calling into those senators. They have to hear the drumbeat. So if you live in one of those states, call in. Uh, if you don't call a friend in one of the who was represented by a Republican to call the Republican now, at the same time, the grassroots groups, the social media, they're calling the members of the House, too, because of what you brought up earlier, this baby, this thing, this, um, shall we say, hamburger by another name could come back over. <laughs> you've already, you've, we've already lost the message. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I normally don't engage repetition, in hypotheticals. Repetition, repetition, repetition. <laughs> right, right. We, we all reject hypotheticals generally here, but let's just say that that, that Mitch McConnell, the sort of, in the most prolific evil leader uh, in Senate history, gets this thing through. What do we do? How can Democrats ensure that this is the defining issue of the 2018 elections? Because Trump ran on re- repealing Obamacare. This was entirely predictable. But the election was about Hillary's emails and whatever frivolous nonsense was in the newspaper that day. How do we help Democrats and everyone voting understand the stakes of what's happening here or what happened? Well, one of the things I think we have to do is focus on it and what it means in the lives of people and not focus on him. Because any time we're focusing on him, we're not focusing on what this means in the lives of people. And that's really what his victory was in in, uh, November, is he had people talking about him the whole time, and then about her emails, about his comments on that. And so it was about him. And I think now, I mean, some of his people are still... You know, do you ever have a friend who was dating a jerk? Yeah, oh yeah, And you just couldn't tell them that they were dating a jerk? You you just had a show (laughs) somewhere along the way, you know. Somebody who isn't a jerk wouldn't act this way. Well, I think that some people just bless their hearts, and with all due respect for their concerns and how they see their interests, and I respect that, they still want to give him a chance. And so it's not about him. It's about them. It's about this health care bill, and it's very damaging to them. It's hard to exaggerate. But if you understand that it's only about the biggest transfer of wealth in our country's history, Robin Hood in reverse, hundreds of billions of dollars going from the middle class and those who aspire to it to the wealthiest people in our country. It's just an excuse, and that's why they have to do it first before they do the tax bill, because they need that nearly a trillion dollars out of the health care bill in order to, uh, to do their tax breaks for the rich. So focus on the bill. It's going to cost you more to get less. If you're 50 to 64, you're going to pay almost five times more for your health care. It's going to undermine Medicare. Tens of mil- uh, I don't know how many it'll be, but millions and millions of people will lose their health care and the essential benefits will be gone, including, including no matter what they say, including pre-existing con- coverage for pre-existing conditions. Switching gears, so we have this, we have this election in Georgia, and obviously there's been a lot of conversation about it. What lessons do you learn from our failure to win both in Georgia and in South Carolina in these special elections? Well, I don't see it that way. Uh, I think we made enormous progress. We, of course, wanted to win uh, in Georgia. That caught fire throughout the country, and small donors all over the country were sending in support for John Ossoff, and he was a wonderful candidate. He had a great campaign. It's a very difficult district. Same thing in uh, South Carolina. Uh, a, a great run, but a very the numbers in the district defy gravity. None of these districts... Not only these two, but the other four, Kansas and and Montana, would have been 
our, on our priority list of districts to go into to win the 24 that we need to take back the Congress. They were districts selected by the president as sure winners for the Republicans when he appointed his cabinet officers. He wouldn't be selecting people from uh, districts that he couldn't, they couldn't win. So, but it's important to note that in those four districts, there was a change of over 70%, 25 points difference uh, in Kansas, 20 points here, 15 points there, 15, over 70%. That translates into many seats. These members, they may celebrate that victory on uh, all four of them, but they, ha- they know, they see the truth there, which is they're all in trouble because if somebody with a 25-point lead or a 31-point lead can be reduced down to a six-point lead, uh, then these districts now are in play. But what, what Wasserman say today that this means there are like 80 seats in play in light of how we reduce their margins in these districts. So, no, we want, we're in it to win it. There, no, no question about that. But the fact is that our, the campaigns were good. They utilized the resources available to them. The, if there's a lesson, it's not even a new lesson, but it's that we have to address the redistricting challenge, and we're doing that with Eric Holder, with Terry McAuliffe, Nancy Pelosi, working together with Chuck Schumer to address voter suppression and redistricting uh, so that we can win some of these cases before 18, but certainly for uh, 2020, all of which relate to redistricting in terms of winning not only the Congress and the Senate, but uh, the state house governorships and state legislative. I think that's really fair. The, the, the conversation on cable, on Twitter about these elections, the, the, the zero-sum way is very frustrating. And I, we agree that redistricting is so important. We've been trying to get Eric Holder on the pod to talk about it. So if he's listening or if his team is listening, we'd still love to have you, sir. Um, well, I'm listening. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Lita Pelosi. And I'll certainly convey your message. Uh, thank I won't you so tell much. him about the hamburger, but I'll tell him about the rest. I think you're right. Georgia, Montana, South Carolina, Kansas, these are not places well, that Montana's are... Well, Montana's not a redistricting. Right. I'm sorry. Right. But But these are tough, tough races for us. And and, and the answer of how and why we lost is complicated. I think a fair assessment of the Georgia six, despite the money, is that it's a serious uphill battle with the partisan breakdown. Ossoff is an imperfect candidate for the district. A great guy, smart, impressive, bright future. But, you know, it's hard when you don't live in there. But there are some Democrats who think like after 2016, we have a tarnished brand. Tim Ryan said it was worse than Trump. Do you think that's fair? Do you think Democrats, we need to do something to fix our brand or or refocus on economic issues? Or, or I don't know. What do you think we should be doing? Well, when Hillary Clinton was talking about the economic message, her numbers were solid. Right. Were solid. When, when it started talking about other things, him, and you know, I'm not talking about her, but I mean just the conversation became more about him and her economic message, right. and that's when things kind of changed. I mean, and other things, you know, we, we know Comey, this, that, and the other. But in terms of, of, of us, this is a whole, you know, this is, this is our turn. You know, it's in 05 and 06, Harry Reid and I made a plan when they told us, you can't possibly win, it's a permanent Republican majority. In spite of the war in Iraq, the president is at 58% in January of 05. We didn't accept that. We made a plan. We took his numbers down to 38, making the differentiation, fighting him on, on privatizing Social Security and the rest of that, and we won. Now, with this, we have the president already in the high 30s. Right. You know, so he's, he's already self-immolating, but not to take anything for granted. It's, it's hard. History's on their side. They won when Clinton won. We won with Bush in the White House. They won with Obama in the White House. 
So we have that opportunity, but it takes strategic, well-planned. And what we're going through now in our caucus among uh, uh, with our Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Sherry Bustos, and David Cicilline, they are listening to members, putting together the priorities of the message, working with the Senate to do so. If I just wrote down what I think the economic message should be and said, let's roll with this two or three months ago, that wouldn't be a real re- reflection of what the members have as priorities from their district. Right. You know, I could have done that, and people say, oh, they have a message. We always had a message. It was a question of how well we conveyed it and how we convinced people. But our message has always been uh, about differentiating between us and them on working families in our country. And the polling is showing 57 to 41, who cares about the middle class? The Democrats. But we walk the walk. We didn't talk the talk enough. Uh, but we know who we are. It's just a question of the prioritizing. Uh, the mat- we have many, shall we say, priorities, but you have to narrow them, and you have to agree on how you present. And that's how we won in the fight on health care. We just tested our, our language. We didn't change our, our uh, priorities. We just tested what language works best. You pay more, get less, age tax, Medicare, and um, 23 million people off of it, and it was a killer message, and such a killer message that Republicans who opposed the bill were using our talking point. First of all, I don't think that uh, members of a party should pick up the, cha- uh, the criticism of the party leadership of the other side. Everybody who's in the leadership knows you become a target. As I said at my press conference this morning, uh, I have had hun- over $100 million spent against demonizing me and my city, which I love, because I'm you know, an early supporter of... Uh, my evolution took place very early in terms of uh, marriage equality and the rest, and they've always labeled me that way and, and tried to use that. But, you know, be that as it may, they've spent over hundreds against me. Hundreds of millions were spent for Paul Ryan when he ran with Mitt Romney, the candidate for vice president, all that exposure and introduction to the public, and his numbers are no better than mine. Right. Uh, Let's call that a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, (laughs) uh, In terms of differentiating from Republicans, uh, it's not just about what we're against, it's what we're for. I think there's been this really important and lively debate about health care inside of the Democratic Party, and you've seen the kind of a range of views. There's been a new push for Democrats to embrace single-payer, and we've seen some potential 2020 candidates talking about that. We had Senator Chris Murphy on the podcast, and he talked about believing that Medicare for all should be accessible, that people should be able to buy into it at some form of a public option. Then we've seen kind of people more cautious simply talking about defending the gains of Obamacare. Where do you fall in that debate? Well, I think they're consistent with each other. As I say, in my own state of California, which has voted for single payer, you can't get there from here without the Affordable Care Act. You can't get there. That's an horizon that that is ever, you know, we're always reaching for uh, but you can't get there because, you know what, it costs money. And there's money in the Affordable Care Act for care. Uh, in California, it's estimated it costs $400 billion a year to do the single payer. They get over $200 million of that, billion of that from the Affordable Care Act. So where do you get the rest? But you have to. You can't, if I just may borrow, resort to your level you can't tinkle all over the <laughs> all over the Affordable Care Act and then say we want single parent. No, you've got to advance and protect the single right. the Affordable Care Act, and that's a path. Now, I uh, actually I'm glad to hear what Chris Murphy said because we had you know one of the proposals in the Affordable Care Act was 
Medicare 55 and over that you could buy into it. It lost by one vote a senator from Connecticut. You do not need to remind us here at Pod Save America <laughs> about what Joe Lieberman did to that bill. I honestly can't waste your time with me ranting about this again. Okay, so we just... agree. <laughs> Too late. Yeah, but the other part of that is that to hold, you know, to say, oh, John Ossoff wasn't enough of a progressive because it, we're trying to win. Right. We don't all represent the same district. Even other people whom we love and admire have their thinking evolve on subjects. Mm-hmm. Let's just let them win, see what the possibilities are. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, if we were starting tabula rasa, no health care system, we'd do single payer. It right. saves the most money. It is no administrative cost. You don't have to prove anything. You know, all you have to do is show up. We had a public option. We do have it in the Affordable Care Act. It was stronger in the House. Uh, you know, that's how it got in. The public option now, if, if, if the states would adopt public options all over the country, this could lead, and the states are the laboratories for something this big, uh, then it could lead uh, to single payers in their, single payer in their states uh, and also, uh, again, laboratories for what we could do at the national level. I was carrying signs for single payer long before I was in Congress. And uh, so, you know, I'm with the program. I, I co-sponsored that bill for years and years. But the fact is, the reality was, this is the bill we got, I think our House bill was better, but nonetheless, the bill that we have is great. Right. It's great. About 20, over 20 million people have access to care. No longer you being a woman is a pre-existing medical condition. No lifetime limits or even annual limits on the uh, coverage that you have. Kids can stay on your program until they're 20, your policy until they're 26 years old, if you wish and they wish. And the uh, issue of pre-existing medical conditions, which affect over 120 million people in our country. All families are affected by pre-existing medical conditions. And so for them to make it optional to the states, is real, and then to say, oh, no, we're protecting it, is just a complete misrepresentation. But again, to take it to your point, this is the path uh, to whatever people want to do next. We had a fundamentally, over 125, 150 million people in the country have health care through their employer. And that still is. But all of those people have better benefits because of the Affordable Care Act. Right. Leader Pelosi, you will always be speaker to us. Thank, Thank you, you for so your leadership. Thank you for all you did for President Obama. So, for so the you made that uh, description of the bill on the phone with, with the speaker? <laughs> we did. We did. And listen, as a former... Oh, the first woman speaker? The That's, greatest speaker. You reverted to that language? John Lovett did. I want to flag that. And look, as a Trump former... Trump is president. Well, we I can won't say whatever we want you now. Don't say, I don't want people tinkling all over the Affordable Care Act. Listen, as a former constituent, thank you for all you did for San Francisco. And I think maybe we should consider uh, annexing Sasa just think about it and get back to me. Well, it's warmer. Yes, it's, it's, it's a thought. Yes. Okay, well, to be continued, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank I'll you. tell Eric of our conversation. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to leader slash speaker Nancy Pelosi for joining us on the podcast today. That's it. Also, thanks to Alyssa Mastromonaco for jumping in as Phenomenal a guest co-host. host. Uh, we love Alyssa. Positive America's mark on politics is bringing profanity to senior leadership so far. I don't know. We should really think about this. Honestly, I, I think it's fine. We have yeah, no problems. I don't give a shit. And again, no one can stop the outro because John's not here to be yeah. like, let's get out of here. <laughs> John's overeating. Oh, oh Fettuccine wait. Alfredo. Yeah. <laughs> Bella. But uh, one thing, you know, we made a little joke about tweeting at John. Let's tweet something else at John. Let's make it nicer because he's on his honeymoon. Yeah. How about we tweet at John today? We were just kidding. 
they actually do need you. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that's it. Bye, guys. Bye.